So, Alan, rising damp. I think yes. a bit like when we talked about bread, the difference in our age is going to make a bit of a difference to our appreciation <laughs> of rising damp. Because I do remember rising damp. I think I might remember repeats of it. Well, you're definitely not that old to remember it first time around. <laughs> rising damp, it started in 74, ran to 78. Oh, wow. Uh, okay. You were born in 75, so you're definitely, so definitely not that repeats. Old. But I know I watched Rising Damp on the television when I was a kid. Mm. So obviously it must have been repeats, but... As we go on to talk about it, it feels like a very 1970s production. Yeah. I, I'm curious to know what your impression of Rising... Like, did, had you heard of it before? I, I, was it a thing in your cultural landscape? I can't remember the first time I saw Rising Damp or anything like that, but I've, I have just remember it always being there. Yeah, it, it was probably repeated on ITV at, at some point. I know it's on all, like, you know, your UK Golds or whatever now that does all the repeats. It's just interesting to me how, well, obviously, when we talked about Steptoe, that's, that's got a real cultural footprint for even both of us were born after it was on air. Some sitcoms go into the culture more strongly than others. And I don't know about Rising Damp. As I say, I remember it as a kid, but I'm not sure that, you know, if you mentioned it to most people of your age or younger, it would be much of a touchstone. I think it would. Um, You remember when the BBC did like the 50 greatest sitcoms or whatever, and they did a big thing, a big deal about it. And they had like celebrities doing little appeals for their favourite in the top 10. I think if I'm correct, Rising Damp was the highest ITV show on that list. That's interesting. I don't think it was in the top 10. And it is interesting that ITV versus BBC sitcoms sort of style. And, you know, at this point in the 70s, sitcom was huge. You know, they were consistently in the top uh, top rated shows. And they kind of went a bit out of fashion. And I think ITV just gave up on them altogether for a while, or at least in any real sense. And so the BBC became very dominant in that field. Because the BBC could chuck them onto BBC Two, you know, you, you didn't have to worry about them being prime time. They're relatively cheap, but ITV, you know, it was made uh, by Yorkshire Television, in fact. The show isn't exactly set anywhere. It's never really mentioned. Well, it's funny you should say that. This was a question I had because, and I actually Googled it because I was so curious as to where it was set. So as I started watching, I thought, well, Rossiter's got a sort of West Midlands type accent. Are we supposed to be in Birmingham? And then there was a reference (laughs) about you could see France from the window. And I thought, oh, are we in London? Are we somewhere down south? (laughs) And so I looked it up and it was filmed in Leeds for Yorkshire Television. Yeah. Yeah, and, yeah. and, you know, on Wikipedia it says, it's sort of in Leeds, we think. It's not really <laughs> There's a ever... few allusions to going to see Leeds United or, or something yeah. like that. Yeah, there's the odd little thing. So so the, it's never explicitly stated? No. And Rossiter himself is originally from Liverpool. He does have that kind of northern-ish... Is he? So I got the West Midlands yeah. wrong there. That's interesting. Yeah, I mean, obviously he's a classic actor, I suppose. You've got to lose the accent. But he's proper... Proper Liverpool and not not posh Liverpool either. Like he must right. have had the accent. And and yeah, and, and and the characters are supposed to be quite a disparate bunch. You know, the they're students who are coming mm. to to stay there. So you can get away with any accent, really. I suppose it's just generic industrial slum. It, it's it's. I think it's good to keep it relatively, you know, open. You don't want to put it in a, a specific place because yeah it, it, the they did a, the film they did the film version they did like way after the series in 1980 was filmed in london sort right. of set there so you know it doesn't matter really it's a slum landlord yeah yeah so yeah uh i'll give a bit of background on uh, on the series in general of, of course we've seen this so many times already it, it starts with the writer like yeah. that, that, you, that's always where these shows come from 
Uh, Eric Chappell. Mm-hmm. Oh, he was born in Grantham, uh, so he's from Lincolnshire. You know, not the most famous person from Grantham. Him and Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> exactly, yeah. And he was uh, working, like, for the electricity board or the gas board or something. <laughs> he was just kind of had a pretty boring kind of office job. Oh, I think he travelled around, and so he met lots of different people. Obviously, that's the great best way to learn character, I suppose, to meet lots of different people. And, you know, he had a family and kids and stuff like that. And at some point, decided he had to uh, take it up more seriously. But that was after he had a bit of success. So he was trying to write novels. He was a bit crap at that. So decided to try his hand at a play and found that he was just much better at dialogue. He was much better at just getting things across in dialogue than trying to describe them in a very beautiful way. So wrote a play. Uh, It was never produced, but it was good enough to get him noticed. They got an agent. And then his second play was called The Banana Box. And that is what became Rising Down. So, Rising Damp began as the Banana Box stage play performed, probably performed in 1971. Oh, right. So that's quite a while before it was um, converted into television. They did want Leonard Rossiter for the role, and they were going to get his wife, Gillian Rain, to play Miss Jones. Okay. So, like, a real-life couple at a time. He was busy. He was doing a job elsewhere. And so they got Wilfred Bramble. Wilfred Bramble. So he was the original Rigsby. And that was in the Steptoe hiatus, that four-year gap they had oh, in the middle of the series. Which we talked about in our Steptoe episode, right, yeah. So he was a huge star, you know, and, and you can see it. You can see him as, as the the Rigsby character, can't you? Yeah. Yeah, it fits. Yeah, it, it, fits. Make, it does. You can Maybe see uh, brush his hair a little bit. <laughs> but, uh, yeah, that works. Yeah. Uh, so yeah, they that that went okay. They and then there was a two year gap before someone finally picked it up to do a bit more of a provincial tour to Newcastle and and East Grinstead and and you know they just did a, a few run a few dates here and there. Uh, so when they did that, they got Leonard Roster in. So that's when it became a bit more familiar to us. And we also at that point got Don Warrington as Philip and uh, not Richard Beckinsale, but the the guy who's playing the character of the young man, who was actually called Noel in the play. I'm not sure why they changed that. It was uh, Paul Jones. Now, I appreciate that name's not going to jump out at you, but... The musician Paul Jones, the singer. Yes, out of Manfred Mann. Manfred Mann, thank you, yes. Yes. Oh, you did right. I thought it was such a generic name. I told you I'm older than you. I know know people. (laughs) Manfred Mann were a bit before my time. but Yeah, yeah. So he'd been, yeah, this very sexy young heartthrob in the late 60s. And so having his name on the thing, you know, can sell tickets. But, you know, he's gone on to do a lot of acting. He's, yeah. he's, he seems to be a capable actor. When it went to the West End, it, like, so he got enough attention to move to the West End. Yeah. That's when Frances de la Tour joined. Okay. So she only joined at the West End. And it ran for... A month, I think, in the West End. Didn't do anything particularly special in terms of sales, but got really good notices. But it was actually when it was up in Newcastle that it got noticed importantly. An executive for Yorkshire Television saw it and thought, this has got potential as a sitcom. I see. And so basically got in touch and said, write me a pilot, you know. By the time all that happened, the Yorkshire TV, he'd moved on. But the the guy who was head of light entertainment at Yorkshire TV was Duncan Wood who a name you may remember because he is the the guy who commissioned the likes of Steptoe and Son and and he was the head of comedy at BBC. Okay. He'd been poached by Yorkshire TV to become head of light entertainment. So even there you see obviously ITV is independent it's 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 outside of the confines of the BBC but I guess by its very nature the BBC's tentacles just by personnel, will have moved into ITV because who the hell else are they yeah. going to recruit? Yeah, I think BBC have much more of a structure to come up through the ranks kind of thing, yeah. But I'm curious, you mentioned before about 
the difference between BBC sitcom and ITV sitcom. So do you want to talk a little bit about what what you mean by that? I think perhaps it's just a cultural thing. The BBC have always had a bit more of a, you know, we're we're educating people, we're improving, like even mm. with light entertainment, we, we should be offering something that is improving the nation. Whereas ITV is like what sells adverts. <laughs> uh, I guess that's the crucial difference as much as ratings still matter to everyone. And I think... ITV, certainly over the years, has got a bit more of a reputation for lowest common denominator stuff. They don't have the same facilities or the same... I don't mean that in terms of practical stuff, but I mean they don't have the same capacity to be experimental, yeah. to make a mistake. Yeah, you know, sure. you need it needs to work, and if it doesn't, get rid of it. Whereas in the BBC, you can get a bit more time to play with. Yeah, so thinking about that these days, you know, ITV tend to have those broad comedies, whereas the BBC, whilst it does have broad comedy is more likely to produce something a bit more offbeat. Because, yes. as you said, they've got BBC Two and the other channels now and to, to be able to produce those. Was that the case in the 1970s? To an extent, yes. I think so, yes. And uh, they did have BBC Two by then as well. So it was almost like, yeah. we oh, yeah, we've got this kind of like little experimental channel. We can do whatever we want with it. Hmm. Whenever you hear anyone being interviewed, looking back to those times, they always say something along the lines of like, oh, back then they'd give you a series or two to bed in. and, and, and like, if, But now it has to be immediately successful or they chuck it out, which I think is probably true, uh, like even at the BBC. But all the, every interview I hear is like an 80-year-old man talking about things 50 years ago. Mm-hmm. And there's always these rose-tinted spectacles yeah, kind sure. of thing. So I don't know how good it really was in the old days. But, but I think if you were watching something like Rising Damp and you didn't, you weren't enjoying it, you had two other choices, didn't you? You could go to BBC One or BBC mm. Two. Whereas if you're watching Benny Dorm now, there are 300 other channels to choose from if you don't like it. Yeah, well, you just go on YouTube and watch Rising Damp. <laughs> yeah, quite. Yeah. You see, I show my age there. <laughs> like, I've still only got one screen in my living room. <laughs> That's it. I mean, I don't, I don't have a telly. Like, I haven't had a telly for years. I don't watch TV as such. I'll occasionally, like, something is a big hit, I might find it out or get it on DVD or whatever. Mm. But I'm just not current at all in that sense. And I think that's becoming more and more common as well. But yeah, the, we could, you could talk forever about the fractured landscape of media nowadays. But yeah, back then, it was pretty much two or three options and you like it or lump it. Well, let's get back to Rising Damp then. So you told me about the stage play. Tell me about how it evolved into a television production. Um, it's largely very similar. The, the, the basic concepts are there. There's a lot of jokes that come straight. I haven't read the play, but um, I've seen a few bits and pieces that I recognise little bits, like just the odd line or plot setups and stuff. And the whole basic setup is the same. Uh, the slight difference in, in our first episode, uh, Philip comes to live there and mm-hmm. Alan is already living there, the Richard Beckinsale character is already living there. In the play, it was the other way around, as, as in this nice young man was coming and uh, the black guy was already there. Uh, obviously, the fact that he's black is quite a big deal. That was that was the inspiration for the play. Eric Chappell uh, read an article or saw something about this young black student who had gone to a very fancy hotel and passed himself off as an African prince and got great respect and, and mm-hmm. good uh, good service because of it. And he was like, oh, that's a really interesting idea. And that was the inspiration point. So the play is about racial stuff. It's about about this this black man who's reinventing himself to get some respect that he wants and this landlord who desperately wants to be something else as well and and that's kind of the the beauty of it really that philip this as uh, rigsby sees him this kind of the other this foreigner 
he is so much more British in this quintessential British way that Rigsby wants to be. He's everything Rigsby wants to be. He's intellectual, yeah. he's suave, he's charming, handsome, sexy, women want him. And yeah. it's everything Rigsby wants to be. And yet he still can't help himself but look down on him and call him primitive and, and all this sort of stuff. And that, that's obviously the whole point of the show, ultimately, is that kind of racial ignorance, I suppose. Mm-hmm. So that was the inspiration point for the whole thing, and it is something that travels through. But there's enough fuel there that we we don't relying on that you know it's not love thy neighbor where that's all you've got to work on yeah it's just a nice setup having watched several episodes in the last week or two there's obviously there's racism in there that you sort of wince a little bit at but it's not Mm. it's not a racist program really Mm. rigsby is the butt of the humor not philip rigsby's foolishness and rigsby's self-importance yeah are far more comedic than any of the clumsily racist things that he says yes and that is really crucial i think especially when watching it from 50 years later <laughs> like that is something that really you you need to have to to create historical legacy that you can keep watching it philip always has the upper hand other than the fact that he lives in a society where he's getting short shrift wherever he goes because he's black but he manages to control as much of that as is possible really yeah and yes rigsby is always the fool there's definitely the odd line where the laughter is they're laughing at a joke that is racist yes they're not laughing at rigsby they're laughing at the joke yeah but ultimately philip is gonna have the last laugh so to speak. So that's okay. And bear in mind, this was a different time. <laughs> this was a 70s we audience. Didn't know. <laughs> and that was going to be getting the laughs. But also, you know, I think it works very well in, in the sense that it's representing the people that were around at that time. Rigsby, the, the Rigsby type was not unusual in that sense. Mm. And so you're representing those people and you're sort of making fun of them. But why the show works so well is that that is not the be-all and end-all. He's still a, quite a sympathetic character. You feel sorry for him a lot of the time. He And I think Eric Chappell says something like, yeah, I, I based him on this particular guy. He was bigoted. He had kind of these odd views. But he was nice. I liked him. And I, that's the kind of dichotomy of it. You know, just it, someone can be ignorant and racist. That doesn't mean they're an evil, evil person. It just means they're ignorant. Yeah. But I, th- I think there was uh, an episode that we watched, uh, Stage Struck, which Peter Bowles plays a camp homosexual character. Yeah. And I think yeah. that that episode, it was a lot more homophobic than it was racist. And than Rising yeah. Damp is racist. And Peter Bowles' character there was not a sympathetic character in many ways and treated a lot less fairly than Philip's character. I, I found that episode really interesting. And again, so that's the one episode, Stage Struck, it really deals with homosexuality the most directly out of anything. Mm. And yeah, so you have Peter Bowles, who's a, a very camp actor, but he's not gay, he's, he's straight. And in fact, he has his eyes on Miss Jones. But the idea that he might be gay is, is kind of the fuel for the comedy. And I think it has, it's one of those things that you think, mm, that's very 70s, kind of has aged well. But, yeah. you know, that was the the culture of the time, you know. Hillary. <laughs> she noticed anything odd about him? Huh? Nothing unusual in his manner. Well, it's a bit theatrical. <laughs> yes, you could put it that way, yes, yes. Well, they're all the same, aren't they? I mean, bound to, you know, putting on makeup and wigs every night. Bound to send them funny, eh? What do you mean, funny? He's one of them. <laughs> what? He's one of them. I don't have to break this to you, Alan, but Hillary is not as other men. <laughs> you mean he's queer? Yeah, he's <laughs>
I think the really telling thing there is that Alan, Richard Beckinsale's character, is the one being prejudiced. And, it, and at yes. first, like, Rigsby's like, oh, he's like that. And, and Alan's, hey, it doesn't matter. Everyone's cool. But it's until it affects him, like, he thinks I this think guy's that coming on. That's an interesting him. observation. So, my observation is this Rigsby's homophobia is the same as Rigsby's racism in that it's ignorant, but not particularly harmful. Whereas mm. Alan's homophobia is that more old-fashioned, ooh, backs-to-the-walls type thing, yeah. where he's genuinely in fear of this predatory homosexual. Yeah. Whereas Alan's character, young man, is not racist. Philip is his friend, and yet he mm. still has a problem with uh, what he perceives as a gay person living in his house. Yeah, he can't just go, oh, look, sorry, mate, I'm not interested. He doesn't know how to approach that situation and deal with it in a But in that, a to me, suggests way. that in 1977, or whenever that episode was made, homophobia and racism were treated differently. Well, they were certainly treated differently by the, by the writer, by Eric Chappell. Yes. And I'll tell you the interesting thing about that episode is that Philip, who's barely in that episode, by the way, mm. one thing he does do is when Alan is getting a little bit worried about this guy being gay, Philip just says, you're being silly. What are you talking about? This yeah. is great. Philip is always straight down the line, 100% correct <laughs> on the side of history, yeah, you know? He, is. <laughs> he absolutely is. So we, that wasn't the episode that we are going to focus on, but if people want to reference that one, that's season three, episode two. Two, stage struck. Mm-hmm. But shall we talk about the episode that we we did focus on? Yeah. So this was uh, one of the early episodes, season one, episode four, called Charisma. Mm, yes. It's you may you, just to clarify, it's episode four. If you include the pilot, some things count the pilot as episode zero, in which case this is episode three of the series. Oh my goodness! Just to confuse you. Well, the episodes have titles, so this is one called Charisma. Yes. What I think we should do is just basically go through the plot loosely. But as we do that, let's talk about the characters in a bit more depth because we've got yeah. the, the main four characters. So just talk us through the episode. Well, I actually broke this down a little bit structurally because I. I was interested in that. So this whole episode is made up of five scenes, which is not a lot, really. Um, and, and that's something Eric Chappell was known for in terms of writing these long scenes. He was kind of, he had a theatrical it mind about stage it. stage you know? background, yeah. Yeah, yeah. It's quite dialogue driven. So he liked these long scenes. And there's, there's five scenes, although I think two of them you could very distinctly kind of chop up into two parts because characters leave and other characters come in, even if it is the same scene. So... You know, five to seven scenes, let's say. Uh, and and the, the thing I found very interesting about this episode, it is quite an early episode, but, you know, this could be the first episode. Because when we meet these characters, we really get a sense of who they are quite quickly. There's no kind of, there's no prior knowledge required. Yes. The very first thing we, we see is Rigsby and Miss Jones. And yeah, we set up the characters. He He's coming in to fix her tap. He's the landlord, he's come to fix it. You know, she's... This kind of slightly, um, she's a bit too posh for this place. Yeah. Like, why is she there? And he, but he likes that. He, he's, you know, he's enamored with her. You can tell straight away that he's kind of, he fancies her. She's coquettish. It, it's not like her going, look, piss off, will you? I'm not interested. She's kind of yeah. like, mm, she likes the attention. She's a little bit interested. That is interesting because he is uh, very clearly and very obviously into her. And she's, yeah. she seems to spend the whole time gently fighting him off. You know, she flirts with him a little bit mm. and uh, encourages him somewhat. But yeah, when you said she's a little bit too posh, I love the, there was a, a line, uh, Rigsby says she brings some class to these lodgings. Shades on the bulbs, blue water in the toilet. <laughs> yes. <laughs> what a beautiful line. <laughs> Yeah, and it, and it's his place, like it's his crap house. <laughs> like, so yeah. you know, yeah. you're bringing some class to this place that I'm overcharging you to live in. <laughs> <laughs> so Miss Jones is a, a kind of 
upper well, upper middle class at least kind of from a good background but no money anymore like the aristocracy doesn't exist anymore kind of uh, idea so she's she's like an administrator for the university and do we know that because i'm curious as to do we ever really get a backstory for miss jones not hugely i think uh, we do see her mother at one point uh, and she's very posh as well and kind of looks down on this whole thing mm. but yeah we don't get a lot of detail but yeah there's the sense that you know the money's gone out of the family you know the money's been lost but she's still got this kind of high status yeah certainly in rigsby's eyes she is of better breeding like yes. that's you know and that that comes into a lot that plays into the whole racism thing as well it's like where you where where do you come from rather than what are you but then you know miss jones is a classy lady and she's you know in impoverished circumstances but she still lives uh, her kind of demure lifestyle and she's got she's got the coloured porcelain how many people around here eat off scenes from the ballet (laughs) yeah (laughs) I'm gonna I'm gonna I'm gonna be throwing in lots more quotes because I think this is such a quotable episode there are so many beautiful little throwaway lines mostly delivered by Rigsby I I think I think the writing is, is gorgeous (laughs) <laughs> well, should we have a little talk about Francis Delatour? Let's. <clears throat> As we're talking about Miss Jones, I think this is this is probably what she's going to be most remembered for, mm-hmm. like after all said and I done, even so. though she has had a very successful career. She's only 30 when this start, this show started. Like, There's even an episode, possibly even series two, where it's her birthday. She's quite depressed about it. And Rigsby says, oh, you don't look a day over 30. She says, I'm not a day over 30. <laughs> 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 but yeah, she... She is a kind of like upper middle class actor, you know. She went to she went to uh, l'école française in London, so she went to a French speaking school in London, as you do, and um, joined the RSC, you know. And it's sort of the posh equivalent of going into rep, who's going into the RSC, yeah, <laughs> just playing those character roles and churning them out. But yeah, this was certainly the thing that made her known. She is probably. M- more respected in the world of theatre. Like, she's won two Olivier Awards and a Tony Award. Uh, And she was in the History Boys. She won a Tony for the History Boys, of course. Right, okay. She was in Harry Potter. I mean, how much Well, I think that when you you said she'll be remembered for this, I always think, you know, when they die, how do they describe them on the news? And I suspect she'll be Harry Potter actor Francis de la Tour because that's that's the first line on everyone's CV, isn't it? Yeah. Well, interestingly, she played a she played a French character in that. So uh, there you go. Yeah. I didn't know she'd been to a French school. Well, she's called De La Tour. I mean, I, maybe she's got some sort of French lineage there somewhere. Perhaps. She's a very well respected actor. I don't think that necessarily means comedy. Like stage, proper, full on stage dramas is what she's known for. Okay. But she plays comedy really well. The timing is there. You know, like what more do you want? She has a, obviously a very distinctive look. She's extremely tall and thin and she's a sort of unlikely sex object to say that oh miss jones um, miss jones you have an hourglass figure well i can't (laughs) help thinking i wish i had a little more sand (laughs) gray line yes (laughs) again lovely (laughs) but i think that's perfect that she's kind of if she was just a young sexy you know chippy like it wouldn't it wouldn't play as well i think it has to there is a sense of that this man who's 15 years older than her and has really nothing to offer in terms of charm and and or anything really still feels like he's got a chance with her and but also then we have the other side of her in that she's desperate for a man she wants she wants philip desperately she'll even 
she's even considering Alan. And, yeah. uh, but but also like there's a couple of different, there's a few different episodes where a man will come along and, and she'll sort of be all in. Mm-hmm. Um, in fact, in in series two, they have a little uh, bit where she she meets a man and she goes off to get married, so she leaves the house. Oh, okay. And she's not in the last few episodes of the series. The reason for that was she had commitments with theatre projects, so they had to write her out. Okay. And then at the start of series three, she's back and she's like, oh yeah, it didn't work out. So it's like, but then they build that into character that's just another failure, you know? She thought she was going to get married and, and it's another, something that's gone wrong. But she's incredibly passionate. And I think the Miss Jones character is, of the lot of them, is the most overtly comedic, I suppose. Mm. It's quite kind of ridiculous, particularly when she's going into that kind of passion, f- friend, passionate frenzy yes. for a man. Yes. We, we watched an episode in, from season four, Pink Carnation, which is... Yes. It's, I mean, it's a classic farce episode where mistaken identity and both Rigsby and Miss Jones go on a blind date and they're supposed to be meeting each other, but they don't know it. And yep. we get another couple involved and it's you know, very farcical. But at the very end of it, they realise, oh, I'm here to see you. You're here to see me. And they're just about to kiss and then they get mm. pulled apart by circumstances. But I, I was like, oh my God, this is going to happen. The will, will they, won't they? <laughs> Does it ever happen? Well, that's it. it. They kind of get quite close to it a few times. And, and yeah, that, that was leading towards uh, the end. She gets kind of ground down by him over the years, I suppose. So in the very last episode, he his divorce comes through from his ex-wife. So that's like kind of presented in a previous episode. You know, he's been married before. They're still sort of technically married. And so he's trying to get his divorce. His divorce finally comes through. So he's like, right, I'm going to ask Miss Jones to marry me. Like, that's what was putting her off before because I wasn't properly available. <laughs> Even though we never get much of a sense from Rigsby that he really wants anything long-term, he just wants to shag her. Like, it's like he just wants to shag. Like, he doesn't have to be her, really. Whereas she, I'm that's what sure she that's wants. I'm not sure that's true. I mean, it's uh, definitely he, he true. a horny old devil, <laughs> for sure. But, you know, this idea that she represents something refined, she's an aspiration yes. for him. He, he likes the idea of that life with this refined woman. Yeah, He yeah. wants to shag her, for sure. <laughs> So, uh, yes, in the very final episode, he asks her to marry him. She says yes in a kind of, well, I'm not getting any younger, but I'd get this done kind of thing. Mm. And then that last episode is a bit sloppy because it's like, oh, we want to get all this story and like we want to finish this off. And so we kind of jump to getting ready for the wedding. You know, her mother comes round to meet him and, and stuff like this. And then we jump to the wedding day. So it's it's kind of very, like, quick. Something you would want to drag out over a whole series, probably. But, you know, yeah. crack through it. And then, obviously, it all falls apart. So the, the, the big gag at the end is he comes in. His brother was his best man, but he messed it up and they took him to the wrong church. So he's like, oh, my God, she she imagine her standing there. I jilted her earlier. And then she comes in and she says, oh, I'm so sorry. I, I just couldn't go through with it. I, I feel so bad that you were stood there waiting for me. So he missed it. She decided against it. I think that's quite a fitting end to that relationship. Mm. She almost gave in, <laughs> but but he didn't. He still didn't get his end away. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> well, okay. So let's talk a little bit more about Rigsby. So we've talked about Miss Jones and Francis de la Tour. Mm-hmm. Talk about the character first, and then we'll talk about Leonard Rossiter afterwards. Okay. So it took me, I think I was probably on the third or fourth episode before I realised that Rigsby had been married before. And again, there's, a, there's an interesting backstory there that we never really fully get explained. But I kind of like that. There's, I don't know, there doesn't seem to be any clear exposition. It's just, you sort of build it together. Or is that just because I've not watched every episode? It does, yeah, it gets more and more as you go along. 
But yeah, it's nice that it's not a big part of his character. It's just like, oh yeah, he, ma- he married this sort of tyrannical woman during the war, and you know, it's yeah. Yeah, it's a happy marriage. I live here; she lives in Cleethorpes. <laughs> you know, that's <laughs> kind of what it is. Right. Yeah, there's an episode in it's season four, series four, yeah, where um, he inherits a load of money from an uncle who's died, but it's on the proviso that he's happily married, and so someone's coming round to check that he's happily married. <laughs> so he gets Miss Jones to pretend to be his wife, uh, but then his real wife has heard about this money so she turns up oh, so we get a bit more information there and and that kind of inspires him to start getting the divorce which we we sort of see the the end result of right at the end obviously rigsby lives in the past to some extent you know he's always talking about the war in the western desert which you're never really sure how much of that is true or not um which is obviously deliberate he ex- he exaggerates everything he's done you know he's got this shrapnel if it was two inches higher i'd be dead you know that kind yeah. of thing but then occasionally it's in his knee you know like in this shrapnel. here's an interesting observation i think now in 2020 as we record this anyone who fought in the war is a hero automatically right I think perhaps in the 1970s, they weren't because there were hundreds and thousands of people who fought in the war. Everybody knew several people who fought in the war and some of them were heroes and some of them weren't. Yeah. And perhaps this character of someone who legitimately had fought in the Second World War, but was, you know, a bit of an exaggerator. And that's maybe something that was a recognized trope in 1977. I'm trying yeah, very carefully there's... because, you know, you've got to be very careful about pouring any scorn on, on our heroes. Well, I think you're right. You know, back back in those days, yeah, everyone would have known someone who had slacked off and uh, dodged, yeah. the, dodged the, the, the draft or had been there and just hadn't done anything. So like um, Leonard Roster, for example, who was a bit too young, just too young. Well, he, he served during the war, but he did his kind of national service. Right. And he was put into the intelligence corps because he was like, he was good with languages. I see. So the idea was they were going to teach him Japanese because the war in Japan was still going on. Then that kind of ended. <laughs> so <laughs> he got moved into, basically what he did, he was in he was in Germany, he was in Bielefeld for a couple of years. Mm-hmm. And he was... Listening to Russians. No, he was in education. He was teaching oh, them. okay. He was teaching the soldiers how to read and write, basically, is what he did. And writing letters home for them and stuff like that for the guys who couldn't write. Yeah. So, you know, he, he did his national service, did his service, but he's not exactly on the front lines, you know. Just as an example, you know, the, a, a war encompasses a lot of different things. Yeah. It's not all running running up to a, a Nazi and, and stabbing them with a bayonet. Not everybody's taking machine gun nests single-handed. Yeah, so so Rigsby, we never, we never get any sense of how he came about this house, mm. like how he got this house and when he decided to turn into a bedsit and become a landlord. Lord, but you know i guess that's just something that happens yeah you know that's how he's making his living he obviously hasn't got much money mm-hmm. uh, but he's very tight with it as well very we see him in the very first episode you know he forces alan and philip to share a room that's barely big enough for one of them anyway so he'll do anything for a for a dollar and it's it's constantly doing little minor repairs and you know things are falling apart <laughs> yeah it's a proper slum which is uh, i mean you've lived in a bed set i've lived in a bed set mm. when moving to london yeah. and you've got no money it, it sort of still exists. I don't. You don't quite. You don't have this anymore. That kind of. I, I've certainly never lived anywhere where it's like the landlord is like, oh, you can't have a woman in after eight yeah. pm or anything like yeah. that. You know, it's very seventies feel. To I it. think there's more. There's more privacy now, but there are still HMOs. They call them houses of multiple occupancy, where you know you kind of have a lockable room, but you share yeah. kitchens or and bathrooms and whatever. I don't know. I'm saying I don't think it's the same anymore. But perhaps there are rules where you can't have someone else living staying with you. I, I don't know. I guess it, it feels a little outdated, but. It, it never feels alien. Like, it makes sense. Like, oh, a bunch of people stuck together in this house. Yeah. yeah. You just need a reason to have people together, really, don't you? 
Uh, what else about Rigsby then? What else jumps out at you about Rigsby? I think Rigsby is very much of his time. We talked about the racism, the homophobia, but mm-hmm. I don't think they are his negative qualities in the sense that, you know, everybody would have had those opinions to some greater or lesser extent. Yeah. It's his insecurity that makes him so He's very proud. Petty. Proud is a good word. Yeah. He's, I think he's insecure because he wants to be something that he's not and he knows he's not and he knows he's not doing a very good job of pretending he is. And he's worried Mm. that everyone can see through him. Philip has him wrapped around his little finger and Mm -hmm. Rigsby falls for it every time. You know, every time Philip tries to wind him up, he succeeds. Yes, he is quite credulous as well, isn't he? Like he will believe stuff. Yes, he goes along with... um, In this episode, there's a bit where Philip... Because he's trying to work out how to woo Miss Jones and Philip tells him about Mm -hmm. love wood, which is something from his African village where they get this wood and they wave it into the woman, in front of the woman and it it makes them crazy with passion. It just gives (laughs) him a bit of wood that he's found in the water or something <laughs> yeah. that that's a lovely example of philip wrapping him round his finger because he just sort of drops this little oh you should try some love wood rigsby <laughs> and just leaves it hanging. well no what he first the interesting thing, the first thing he does he, uh, so rigsby says like well what do you do back in your country like and philip goes oh no we're too we're too we're primitive we can't teach you anything <laughs> yeah just stirs him up you should try maybe you should try some love wood and rigsby sort of pulls a face and there's a pause and he's you tell me a bit more about Lovewood. <laughs> just, and Philip's got him. Philip's got him on the line and he just slowly reels him in and then he sends him off with this little piece of bloody wood. It's great. I tell you what, you completely undersold that because there is a bit where, yeah, he explains what the Lovewood is and then Rigsby goes through this facial kind of transformation where he's you go from, oh, that's interesting to, oh, that's very interesting. Oh, I, I should, I, I want to try this. How can I ask him? And I'll tell you what, because I, I timed it. 21 seconds. Wow. Of just Leonard Roster pulling faces between between dialogue. Okay. And, and then finally kind of goes, oh, you got any of this Lovewood, have you? <laughs> you know, yeah. like, yeah. it's um, like that is comic tour de force well, in 20 seconds right there. And and there's at least three distinct laughs within that as well. It's hardly you know? surprising that Leonard Roster can deliver this better than me. But 21 <laughs> seconds, I'm genuinely impressed because that is a hell of a long time. It didn't it didn't feel like a hell of a long time. Yeah. He, like you say, he rides it. But yeah, that was one of, that's one of the best moments in the episode in terms of like po- comic performance. Shall we talk about Leonard Rossiter, the actor, then? Sure, yeah. Tell me about what he'd done before this. I think, to me, Leonard Rossiter is... I know he was in 2001, the Kubrick film, which is odd. Yeah. But to me, Leonard Rossiter is the guy out of Rising Dam and Reginald Perrin. And they were his two big roles yes. in, in my head. That's definitely what he's, his legacy is, yeah. So Rossiter was, yeah, like I said, he's from Liverpool. He was born in 1926. He was quite intelligent young lad. He was good at languages. The idea was that he would go to um, university and become a teacher, which was like the highest aspiration of, of that class back then. But his dad died during the war in an air raid, so like that just wasn't possible. He had to get a job, he had to help look after the family. Did his national service, as we talked about, and he got a job as an insur- insurance clerk. And then when he was sort of in his 20s, he had a girlfriend who he was seeing, and she did amateur dramatics. So one day he went to see them, and he was like, well, if I can't do better than that, <laughs> cut their crap. So I think I could do better than that. And she says, oh, well, I'll do it. So he joined the Amateur Dramatics and he was just good. He was a really good actor. And so one thing led to another, led to another. And eventually he, you know, he sent out letters to rep companies and said, can I join? And he got a place in Stoke, I think. Maybe I'm thinking of else. Anyway, he got a, he got a job. That was when he was 27, got his first job. So that's in interesting to me because I think of people, you know, we've just been talking about the war and the impact it had on Rigsby. But I think of people of that generation, I imagine them either at university acting and getting into drama or putting on shows in the army. Yeah. And I thought you were going to tell me that that's what he'd done during the war. 
but it became much later in life for him. I didn't even get much of a sense that he was a performer or entertainer. He wasn't like the the class clown in the office, you know? He wasn't... He's not a funny man. So you're telling me he's a serious actor who got into comedy, not, not a comedian who became an actor? Yes. Interesting. I'll tell you this as well, though. He's not just serious about his comedy. He is deathly serious about it. He's, he expects everyone else to be as well. That is the over... You listen to anyone talking about Leslie Rossiter. The thing that comes across that, oh, he was a git. <laughs> he was... Yeah, that is really very much the thing that comes across about Leonard Ruster. He was hard to work with, but he was doing it right. And he did it his way, and obviously he's good. Yeah. He expects everyone else to be doing it at that level as well. See, now you've said that, that makes me understand why he was in a Kubrick film. <laughs> yes, two Kubrick films. He's in Barry Lyndon oh, as well. Oh, right. Uh, is a much more significant role in that. I've not yeah. seen Barry Lyndon. Kubrick liked him, I guess. Well, yeah, it sounds like they were peas from the same pod. Both assholes. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, Leonard Rossiter just all around comes across as a difficult person. Before Rossiter did Rising Dam, which made him a household name, he was known, you know, he did a lot of theatre stuff, he'd done quite a lot of little, you know, here and there TV roles. He was known for being a great actor and, like, something was coming, you know, he was going to get some big show. Jimmy Perry and David Croft were making Eight and a Half Hot Mum. Okay. And they wanted him to play Sergeant Major Williams. Interesting. The Winter Davis, Davis role. role. Yes, because they said they wanted it. They wanted that character to have a, a bit of depth, a bit of complexity. <laughs> uh, like, <laughs> exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And they changed their minds, <laughs> presumably. Yeah, obviously. Yeah. But they, and because and they, they, they didn't want him to be just like a pantomime villain. Mm. So they thought Leonard Rosser could do that. And so they, they got him in for a meeting. They sent him a script and et cetera. And the way the story is told is they, they said to him like, oh, wh- what do you think of the script? And he just went on this tirade of telling him everything that was wrong, everything that they should be doing better. And this is Jimmy Perry and David Croft, who are already very successful, like, sitcom executives. So they don't take kindly to that. And I think that's another thing. He just has no tact. Okay. Like, there's no sense of, oh, how can I say this diplomatically? It's like, well, you know, this is what's wrong. I'm telling you. Fix it. And I'll do the part. Interesting. And they basically came out of the meeting saying, we will never work with Leonard Rossiter. Yeah. And and this was before Rising Damp. He he did not have kind of the, the weight to make those waves, you know? So Rising Damp was his, obviously not his big break, because he'd been doing things before but it was his first what starring role first time he was carrying a production yes i think so certainly the one that made him a household name yeah so when did reginald perrin come did that come after rising down two years later so they were on at the same time at one point okay that's the overlap yeah well we should let's not talk too much about reginald perrin because i think that might be a future episode i'd really like to cover that at some point well, that, that's the interesting thing about Leonard Ruster being a git. You know, everyone just says, yeah, he's very difficult to work with. But everyone says it in a way like, yeah, he was very difficult to work with, but he was right. So what can you do? You can't like, argue with him, really. Yeah, yeah. He was always right. That's how you get away with that, you know? But it meant that he pulls everyone else up to his level. And I think in Rising Damp, that's what we get. Yes. The acting, the casting of those four main parts is perfect. Yes. And the, the acting across the board, and most of the guest people who come in are pretty solid as well. It's a terrific ensemble cast though, isn't it? Really strong. And they, they're strong individuals and they work well together. I think the, way, the reason it worked so well there, in, ter- like in terms of from Leonard Rossiter's point of view, so Don Warrington, obviously they met during the play, but Don Warrington was young. Like he was straight out of drama school. Mm. He was 21, 22, something like that. So he really looked up to Leonard Rossiter. So when Leonard Rossiter says to him, do it like this, this is the best way to do it. He did it that way. Yeah. And that's all right. If, if, you, can, if you do what you're told by Leonard Rossiter, that's fine. As long as you can do it. Yes. With Richard Beckinsale, we'll come on to his career 
in a little bit. But basically, what everyone says about him, he was just totally chilled out. And I think he was yeah. the exact opposite to Leonard Roster, but in a way that didn't make them spark, kind of I brought see. the breast out of each other, because he didn't rise to Rossiter's bait. But also, again, if you're doing the job, he's okay with you. If you're getting it done, yeah. that's fine. And then again with Francis de la Tour, apparently they just had nothing in common at all. <laughs> they just, they didn't, like, they did their scene and then walked off and never spoke to each other. Fascinating. So, that, so there was no chemistry in real life? No. In that last episode, you know, it was written in the script at one point that they kiss. And Leonard Rossiter was just like, no, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> not going to kiss. <laughs> so they just have a bit of a hug instead. <laughs> but yeah, there was no love lost between them there. But respect to each other professionally enough that they could just get the job done. Yeah. And Frances de la Tour has basically never spoken about Rising Damp. There's one little interview of her, I think it was from when Leonard Rossiter died. And she's talking about Leonard Rossiter died in the theatre. Mm. He was halfway through a performance of Loot. He was young, wasn't he? Um, How old was he when he died? Relatively, 57. Yeah, that's young. Uh, this was 1980s. <laughs> well, yeah, 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 it's young. But. Yeah, so it was 1984. So bear in mind, you know, this show had ended in 79 or something. He was doing loot in the West End. And yeah, he missed his call. He was supposed to come on, his character, and he wasn't there. Like, what's going on? Leonard Roster never misses a call. Go down to his dressing room and he's dead in his chair. Heart attack. Wow. Yeah. And he was fit. Like, he played squash every day. You know, he was very sporty, physical guy. I know he doesn't look it, particularly. <laughs> he does look unhealthy, as they use to well, their advantage as Rigsby. He doesn't look like overweight and a big drinker in that sense. He does look a bit of a sickly... <laughs> but I think that's just Rigsby. I think that's Rigsby <laughs> rather than Rossiter. Yeah. <laughs> But yeah, so I think uh, Francis de la Tour was in the audience that very night. Oh. And like I said, they weren't friends or anything, but she obviously went to see him perform. But yeah, I've only heard a couple of things of her talking about Rising Damp in any way. And it's really about like, oh yeah, it's very sad Richard Beckinsale died. Oh yeah, it's very sad Leonard Rossiter died. It's kind of like those kind of interviews mm. rather than anything about the show. Mm. She just doesn't talk about it. And I think she uh, like she really didn't want to get painted as a sitcom actor, I think. yeah. So we said... Reginald Perrin ran at the same time or overlapped and then... Yeah, now, the interesting thing for me here, like, I've watched Reginald Perrin relatively recently and just in terms of talking about Rising Damp, having those great actors around you and how that works, I find Reginald Perrin, like, I'm not saying all the other actors are crap, but I'm not... I don't think any of them are great. Well, this is why I'd like to cover it again and, and perhaps, again, let's not spoil a future episode, but mm. I haven't seen it for years. I remember liking it a lot when I was a small child. It'd be interesting to, because it was quite, it's quite formulaic. So, well, it's, it's, it's a really weird show, actually. Well, we won't get into it. I want to do that at some point. I am fascinated to hear stories from that because, like, if Len Russ doesn't handle crap act as well, I'm not sure how he got through (laughs) Reginald Perry. (laughs) So what about what came after Reginald Perry then? We know that he died a few years later, but, but after he starred in these two major sitcoms, you know, that's what he's most remembered for. What did he do in the remaining years of his life? The last thing he did in terms of sitcom was Tripper's Day, uh, which was a sitcom. He, he They did one series, then he died, and they brought it back as Slinger's Day, I think it's called, with Bruce Forsyth. Oh. So basically it was like, he he's like the, the new manager who comes in to sort out a supermarket or something. So he's like a bit of a, an arrogant kind of manager guy. Yeah. A bit like a Br- British Empire kind and, you of know, thing. I was just going to say it sounds like that. British Empire. I haven't watched it in any great detail, so I, I don't want to kind of make that connection too easily. But yeah, they just sort of carried on doing it with a different actor. I mean, that was it. He he had more comedic roles, really, yeah. after Rising Damp. 
That's kind of what he was known for. But he did serious stuff as well. He liked to do that. There's theatre show every year at least. You know, one or two every year. Just working, working actor. Yeah. Yeah. That's that's about it really. Yeah. Obviously died relatively young. Just one little sitcom connection actually. His first wife, who he met in rep when he was you know a young man, is Josephine Tewson. I don't know that name. Um, now, the name might not jump out to you, but she plays the neighbour in Keeping Up Appearances. Okay, right, yes. Like the kind of slightly nervous yeah. who's scared of Heisen. That's his first wife, you know, just in a weird sort of sitcom connection. They split up relatively young, and he, his second wife was Gillian Rain, who is another person who's, you know, just a, a, a working actor. Yeah. And they were married right up to his death. He had a he had a child quite late on, I think we were in their mid-40s when he had a kid. But like, I've seen interviews with his daughter, and even she's like saying, like, oh, he's very competitive. We would play squash together, and you know he would he would have to win. It's the only way they're gonna learn, mate. <laughs> he just seems like a real uh, piece of work. <laughs> and that's all we have time for this week. Do join us again next week when we'll look at Richard Beckinsale and Don Warrington in a little bit more detail, and we'll finish going through the episode charisma uh, in detail. Thank you for listening. If you'd like to get in touch with us, we're on the social medias. We're at BritcomPod. And do go check out the YouTube channel. It's British Sitcom History, where we have the podcast up, but with a few little visual touches just to help things along and some other extra material as well. So go and check that out and uh, hopefully you'll find something you like. Thank you for listening and come back next week.